Blackpool has gone into lockdown two nights ago. Um, so yeah, so we're all, I'm actually doing this from the comfort of my bedroom and I love it. <laughs> we should do this more often. The second lockdown. So we've abandoned our um, kind of cozy studio in the Baltic Triangle. And we are recording today, thanks to Zoom, from five venues all over the Northwest. Um, so please accept our apologies if the quality, uh, sound quality for this is poor, but we'll do our best. Um, we are in, on the cusp of autumn here and uh, we are still enjoying a bit of sunshine. So without further ado, my name is Bob Towers. I'm your host and the co-host um, as ever is Caitlin Bradley. Caitlin, how are you? Hello, good afternoon. I'm fine. How are you? I'm good, mate. What, what have you been up to right, lately? You know, we, we all <laughs> want to hear these stories. You all want to hear these stories. Well, trying to buy toilet roll last night. Oh, my God. <laughs> there is not. But yeah, apart from that, everything's cool. Everything's fine. Oh, um, yeah. It started again, a bit of the panic buying. It's horrendous. And I, I noticed you've been panic drinking as well, just, just to make sure. <laughs> always, always, Bob. You can never have enough. Dave, don't forget, everybody, the way that you can test for coronavirus is uh, if you lose your smell and taste. So uh, Caitlin has been uh, checking her taste and smell with alcohol um, <laughs> regularly each day. And that, that's how she knows uh, she's clear. So, yeah, I've uh, not got COVID-19. It's, it's all cool. But yeah, uh, so yeah, we are all in lockdown around. Blackpool has gone into lockdown two nights ago. Um, so yeah, so we're all, I'm actually doing this from the comfort of my bedroom and I love it. <laughs> we should do this more often. <laughs> but of course. I, I, I like the way you, you, uh, you've actually got um, Zoom makeup because we have podcast makeup, but now there's Zoom makeup as well. <laughs> I'm so glad you all can't see me. <laughs> I have right. got without them. further ado, without further ado, let's let's get on to introduce our guest because I'm really excited that we've got two really talented young filmmakers with, with us here today. So we have Andrew Gaines and we have Michael Roberts. Oh lads, welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon. Hello, UK. Good. And um, right, who is calling from from uh, Lancaster? Is is that you, Michael? It is, yes. I am in Lancaster at the moment, um, but I'm originally from Ellesmere Port, and I do live in Ellesmere Port, but I'm, uh, I'm in my camper van at the moment as I do this interview. Do you know what? That is so stylish, coming from a camper van, van in Lancaster. It's just so impressive. Andrew, can you compete with that? What are you calling from, mate? Well, I'm calling from Morton, which isn't as uh, sophisticated as a camper van in Lancashire, but uh, I've had tea, I've had toast, I'm still in my pyjamas. I've got no shame whatsoever. So I'm really content where I am. Really content. <laughs> and can I just say before we get into it, um, because Andrew Gaines is a fashion icon. So you, you've disappointed me there saying you, you're in your pyjamas, mate. I hope you've got a silk dressing gown or something as, as well. <laughs> I've got a smoking jacket, you know, and I've got uh, a cigar for each pocket. And I uh, top it up each evening before I go to bed, so I'm well equipped in the morning. Oh, mate, that, that's that's <laughs> how I exactly how I envisage you, right? Um, <laughs> well, first, first, let's let's start with with yourself, um, Michael. Um, how would you how would you describe yourself and, and, and what you do? 
Um, I think I'd say I was a dreamer. I definitely would say I'm, I'm a dreamer. Um, I, I've always been into film and acting. I started off as an actor before I became yeah. a filmmaker. Um, and I went to college, I studied acting, and then I studied technical theatre, and then I started working within uh, the theatres in Liverpool, worked at the Everyman, worked at the Echo, worked at the Philharmonic Hall as a, a technician. And I remember there was one day in work where I was thinking, right, I need to start filming all my comedy stuff. I need to start filming all the things that I write about and, uh, and, and start getting some content out there. And I met a filmmaker called John Scotland who really inspired me and this was really the around right about the time when you know people started filming on DSLRs and and actually a lot more independent filming was actually taking place because you know things were more you know you could but we could go out and buy cameras that, yeah. that shot at a really good quality and you could start buying film equipment that didn't break the bank um and so it opened up this world to kind of become a filmmaker to help me film the comedy uh, that I was writing at the time uh never did i know i was going to go on to be a filmmaker more than an actor yeah um it, it's that funny one isn't it when they say oh i just fell into it and you kind of yeah. go how does someone just fall into something but i did fall Pretty straight sure. into yeah. filmmaking you know so for me i mean now i'm completely different to what i thought i was going to be at the age of 32 um i thought i was going to just be an actor um and I never thought I'd be behind a camera, but, you know, I love both elements of it. And I think it makes you more rounded as a performer to know the ins and outs of, you know, being a filmmaker, know, understanding yeah. how to put something together. So if anything, it's just enhanced my acting ability. And it's also helped me kind of, well, you know what? I don't need to pay a big production company to go and do it. I'll do it myself. So yeah, that's how my presumably when you're acting, you're kind of in some ways um, seeing that from the point of view of of a camera, and and does does that help you kind of um, set the scene and deliver the the acting? Well, yeah, because I wrote my sitcom Morbid in two thousand and seven, um, mm. and then obviously I just wrote from a comedy point of view from from someone who could. I'm always a vi I've always been a visual learner. However, yeah. I think once. I, obviously coming back to it 10 years later at the age of 30 and, and being a filmmaker for the last five, six years kind of made me understand more when I was going over and rewriting the draft that I had. Um, so it was, it was good to be able to go back to a script and go, right, well, we need to change this script. We need to change that there. We need to put in, right, this is the actual shot that I want. So we'll, we'll put that in. Whereas before it was just dialogue. It yeah. was dialogue and some of the jokes were really cheesy, really childish. But, you know, I wrote that when I was 19. Obviously, I, look, I, go, I went back to the script 10 years later and obviously my humour's changed. My yeah. experiences of life have changed. Mm -hmm. um, and I've watched, you know, a heck more comedies um, in those 10 years. So um, I've, I'm always constantly learning and, and kind of understanding different um, aspects of comedy because there's so many different types. There's things that my friends will laugh at that I just won't get. But then there's things that I'll say that people won't get. So it's, it, you know, comedy is so, um, there's so many different varied types of comedy. Um, so for me, it, going back to it 10 years later was good because it gave me chance to kind of grow up and write the comedy I wanted to write. So it, I think it, I'd say to anybody going out there to write something, leave it for a while and come back to it. You know, if you really believe in something, leave it and come back to it. 
certainly. Tell us about Morbid then, please. What, what's, what's the idea behind it? Do you want the full story? I'll condense down the full story. So, yeah. Morbid actually started in 1997. Oh my um, God. Yeah. So it's been my, it's been, it's my life's work. And yeah. if it's the one thing that makes me, um, I'd be happy with that. I, I don't, right. I'm not this one of these actors that wants a, an Oscar because I'm not interested in all that. Um, for me, I'd be happy with a BAFTA. I'd love a, a <laughs> BAFTA for best British comedy. That's all I want in my life. Once I've achieved that, I'm done. Yeah. Uh, so and you've got a moon board, haven't you? A vision board. And I, I have, and the, and the BAFTA's that. on there. It the is BAFTA's on there. It's so, morbid. so, yeah, so Morbid started in 1997 when my granddad died. And my mom, I remember just before he died, he, my mom always used to joke about his nose. My granddad had a big nose. I mean, I think it's a family thing because, like, um, <laughs> for, for, for those of you that can see, I've got a big nose. So it's a, it's a big family thing with big noses. And um, my mom used to joke and say, Oh, your nose would never fit in a coffin. And, <laughs> you know, the kind of humor our family has is very, you just say what you what you're thinking. There's no kind of limit of of where our, our humor goes. And um, I remember when my granddad had passed away, my mum went to to view the body at the funeral directors, and the funeral director took the coffin lid off, and his nose was bent. And she went, "I told you." <laughs> <laughs> and Did they have and to that, bend it to, to put the lid on. Well I, well, I, do you know, it was just quite funny because she told me that years later. She never, she told, well, I, I got the humour at the time, but it wasn't <laughs> until like a, a year or two later when obviously we'd got past the fact that, you know, my granddaughter died and that she actually told me that story. And, you know, at the time I was, I, I just thought, do you know what, there's, there's something in this. This is a type of comedy, a type of humour that you only see when when there is a death. It's a coping yeah. humour. And yeah. and like I said before, there's so many different types uh, of comedy. And, you know, every time I used to tell people about this story, I've got this idea to write this sitcom set of funeral directors, there would always be someone that goes, oh, I'll tell you a great story, what happened to me at my auntie's funeral. Someone right. always has a story, yeah. and that's because it's a coping humour. It's a very yeah. nervous coping humour that people, some people laugh, some people cry, some people go quiet, some people are very loud, some, you know. Mm. And I think with that comedy, it, it's, it's, it's a way people can cope with a very stressful and poignant moment in their lives when they've lost a loved one. And I thought, you know what? This is a humour that really needs to be shown. And we're seeing it a lot more now with the likes of Afterlife. We're seeing yeah. these programmes now where we are, because, you know, the British people, very it's a very taboo subject. But, you know, back in the, the 50s and 60s, sex was a very taboo subject. And now yeah. you can't turn on the TV without seeing, you know, loads of, sex um yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know i do think we are waking up to the fact that you know we all have to go through death we we all have to go through the loss of somebody and i was working with uh, ken dodd uh, on a christmas show at the philharmonic hall oh. and yeah after his five hour show it was must have been about half 12 <laughs> one o'clock and, and I, I went to his stage door and i knocked on the stage door and i and he opened the door and said ken i said i've worked with you for the last couple of christmases now i said um would it be okay if, if I could ask you a few questions? And he said, yeah, come in. So I went in and he, I said, look, I want to be a, a comedy writer. I love comedy. I've grown up watching you. I said, what could you tell me that I could take with me in my comedy journey? And he said, never swear. He said, never be blue. Never be crude. Um, 
he said, because, you know, you can be really clever with comedy without having to swear. He said, and write what you know, relate it to people. Mm. Um, and those two things alone uh, kind of made me think, well, do you know what? We can all relate to death. Yeah. You know, we, we're all going to die. And we're all, we all have to kind of, I think we should all talk about it. It's definitely yeah. something we should talk about. We call it gallows humour. And mm. it's a legitimate emotion. And in some ways, it helps to kind of break the stigma around death and dying. Oh, and yeah. All those things. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not, it's not, a, I mean, I've lost grandparents and, I've, and I'm starting now at the age of 32 to lose friends, um, which never really lost any friends past 25. But as I'm getting older now, especially in my 30s, I am now going to funerals of friends and people that I know. So it's, you, it, it's that age old saying in, in Indiana Jones, uh, when life stops giving you things and starts taking it away slowly. And it's, and it's so true. Um, but for me, I wanted to write about more, uh, write about funeral directors um, because for me, um, I just thought that, you know, okay, we've had In Love and Memory of uh, Christopher Beanie and, and Thora Heard. Uh, we've had Six Feet Under from the States. We've had these comedies, but I don't think they have ever touched on this coping humour. They have never, fo they're focused on worst case scenario of a funeral directors. And then you've had all those standard jokes that you come to expect with a with a, a sitcom yeah. set of funeral directors, so I wanted to write about the brother and sister. I wanted to write about people that I knew. So I was writing about what I knew. Mm -hmm. So we have Mike, Dave, Elric, and Ashley. Ashley is my sister. Her real name is Ashley. Uh, my character is Mike. My my name is Michael. So um, and then Dave was a guy I went to college with who was a bit of a Jack the Lad, you know, always landed on his feet. And Elric, who co-writes it with me, is Elric. Never did I ever think that Elric would ever want to play that part because yeah. this is the guy that got me into, into acting. He was in sixth form, I was in year 10, and I just adored this, this crazy eccentric guy. And he, and he was an actor and he was doing um, uh, acting uh, for A-level. And I just always looked up to this guy. He was like an inspiration. He's just this funny, mm -hmm. quirky, happy-go-lucky guy. And then we worked together in retail. Uh, we worked at Mountain Warehouse. And um, I said, I've got this script for uh, an idea set in the funeral directors. And I'd been in some of his stuff. He did a, a show called Sagacity, which was uh, based at the Rose Theatre in uh, Edge Hill. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. And we, we performed that there. It was a bit like Bugsy Malone style mafia, mm -hmm. but with like people ranging from about 15 up to about 20, 30. So it was like a really young cast, but they were like grown up characters. Um, and we did that and it was brilliant. And and when it came to me starting to put more on the map again and start, you know, I went out and bought a hearse on eBay, as you do. And, um, he literally messaged me on Facebook and went, you're serious about this, aren't you? And I went, I'm deadly serious. He said, I'll, I'll, I'll read the script. He read the script, phoned me the next day and said, look, this is brilliant. I'll help you. I'll, I'll play Elric. And for me, that was just, wow, brilliant. this is incredible. The guy that got me into acting, the guy that I yeah. look up to, my best friend, um, yeah is now my co-writer. He now co-writes the series with me and he's a brilliant writer as well. So I'm in a really good position where I've got the right people um, working on this and it's just taking it to that next step. The pilot yes. took two years to write. We raised 5,000 pounds on crowdfunding. Now it, I mean, that was hard, but you know, that I, I've had two years of depression with it because, and I said this to Andrew, you know, when that Dan Delicious goes out, no one ever preps you for that depression period of 
that after show blues and when you've put your life and soul into something and it just it's out there and you think your world's going to change and it doesn't i mean it, oh, really? it does because more people obviously respect me as a filmmaker more people know who i am and it has obviously projected my business out there as well however you think you're going to get your BAFTA. You think you're going to go straight into a, a full production for Netflix and it doesn't happen. Doesn't so happen. there is that period. And I'm only just, we released that episode in 2018. I've only just now started writing again. I've only just now got back on the horse after just feeling deflated. And it's been, it's been watched by 30,000 people. Yes. You know, it's been watched by Richard Branson. It's, um, it was watched by a, a, a a producer uh, called Richard from the BBC, um, you know, and they loved it, absolutely yeah. loved it. And, yeah. and you, know, you don't get people of that calibre watching a 45-minute pilot from some independent filmmaker from Cheshire. Yeah, you just don't get that. Yeah. So we know it works, mm. but the problem is, how do we then move this forward? How do we then ask for £400,000 to film a series? Yeah. It, you know, and that's where we're at now. We're slowly making headway, but it's taken two years for me to get back in their headspace. So it is hard. Yeah. No, I accept it. But one, one of the things that I saw about your YouTube channel as well is you've got 17 million views on, on that, uh, which have yeah. came over the years. But what do you think it, it, um, is, is that the, the channel that other filmmakers should, should be doing now? How, how did they get their, their work seen? So we got 17 million views from one particular video. I mean, I've had the, the analytics of YouTube have changed dramatically now um, to the point where it's very hard to get, you know, seen on, on YouTube. However, uh, when, when I started the account in 2012, we had um, a scene. So I used to write a lot of comedy sketches. I, I grew up watching the fast show, of, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Big Train, uh, Hail and Pace, um, mm. Jasper Carrot. I, I watched all those, those great, get shows of the early 90s yeah. and I wanted to do stuff like that so when I was writing comedy I couldn't write a full script um I was writing just these little sketches and we wrote yeah. one called the deaf guy and it was the sign language guy that was mm. doing sign language to the sex scene in Titanic <laughs> with Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio <laughs> and Kate Winslet so he's doing the sign language he's doing all this and then they start getting down to it and then all of a sudden he's then like rubbing his like chest and so and and that's been blocked by fox twice and then when they realize we've made no money from it they've reinstated it so if you do search for it, i think it's called titanic sex scene and it's the deaf guy sketch and it, it should still be on there but it's, sometimes it's quite hard to find but that got us the 17 million views and that's what got us the 10,000 subscribers but we've obviously had people engage with us since that so it has grown the channel but yeah anyone looking at that goes wow have you done that and yeah. in all seriousness, I don't know. <laughs> Just have to be. How did you then? There. How did you then get into uh, take the cake productions and tell me how you started that? Well, it's, it all came full circle because um, take the cake was actually uh, a line from the original script of Morbid. Uh, so I wrote Morbid before I had the production company. Yeah. And the the original scene which came out of the script uh, quite early on, it was um it because in the in the first episode, Mike and Ashley lose their parents. Um and so we uh, the original script started off at the funeral, but then when we revised the um the pilot, we got rid of that and it was just day one of Michael opening up the funeral dredges. So we got rid of like three or four scenes, 
and we started at a different point. So there was a, an elderly relative that was force feeding Mike some cake and she says, take the cake, take the cake. And it was this repetitive thing where this elderly woman's trying to force feed Mike cake at this wake. And it just didn't sit with me. It didn't feel funny. It was a very childish way of looking at something. And that was obviously what I wrote when I was 19. Go on, go on, go on. uh, Go on, go on, yeah. I mean, I I love Father Ted. I mean, I'm a massive Father Ted fan. Mm. Um, I love (laughs) IT crowds. Um, Graham Linehan, who who wrote that uh, with Arthur Matthews, Mm. they are my inspiration. Yeah. Um, And I wanted to write something that, that linked both of my two comedies together. Massive fan of Only Fools and Horses. Mm. Um, so I wanted to bring Only Fools and Horses and Father Ted together to make <laughs> like this um, amalgamation of comedy. Uh, so you have the religious side, but you also have that Dell and Rodney brother yes. kind yeah. of relationship as well. And, and you know, what, what Only Fools and Horses did really well was this whole, you know, th- you know there'd be scenes where they talk about um, characters that you never actually saw, never ever met. There were characters that, that spun, spun, span that whole series. And, and that's what I wanted to create. I wanted, wanted to create Michael Ashley, Dave and Elric, and have this universe of characters. So in the next episode, we introduce a pub, which is the local pub, which is like your nag's head. Yeah. So, you know, there is a lot of inspiration from Only Fools, from Father Ted, that will be there in, in, the, in the body of Morbid. And I think with any great writers, there is always inspiration from things that have been and gone. Um, you know, it's like Andrew's a big Doctor Who fan, and and I am as well. I love the, the classic uh, Doctor Who's of Don Baker. Would you like a jelly baby? <laughs> you know those kind of things. You know, so I grew up watching Doctor Who, and and one day I will be Doctor Who, um, and I'll get there before Andrew. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Because I'm older, I'm allowed. And um, he, yeah, he he. Bring it I'll on. regenerate into him. That's that's the plan. So. Um, <laughs> So yeah, so no, no, let, let's take Who. you back. Let's take you back to Take the Cake Productions, though. Yeah. Yeah. So Take the Cake Productions was formed from 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 Morbid, and then obviously the 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 name was was always there. And when we submitted Morbid to the BBC Writers Room in two thousand nine, it said, "What is the production company?" And I was like, "I don't know." So <laughs> so obviously, you Take the Cake. Well, Take the Cake was just there because I yeah. think we just we just finished writing that scene. I think. Um, and it was Take the Cake. So Take the Cake Productions was then formed. And then I started for five, six years writing comedy. Um, I did sketches. I did a character called Electric Dave. It was um, it was a sketch of this guy um, from the 80s. And everything was filmed as if it was all filmed on a VHS um, yeah. camcorder. Um, and so we did that. I did Merica Laura, which was based on Derek Acora. Uh, I had the pleasure of actually working with Derek Acora, and then we went off to do a spoof of Most Haunted called Scariest Places. Then we had loads of... It is. It's all on my YouTube. It's all on my YouTube. But um, it was funny because that was when I was learning about filmmaking. I'm self-taught. That was my kind of time to to learn and, and just kind of pick up a camera, write, act, film, produce, distribute. You know, for me, it was just brilliant. So then... Obviously, I was working in Starbucks, worked in Starbucks for seven and a half years. And then one Christmas, it was literally, I think it was the 19th of December, this customer who had served for nearly six or seven years, 
who I'd never really spoke. I, I have a good connection with a lot of my my uh, past uh, customers, but there's this one guy that just never really had a conversation. He just I knew what he drunk and he had his drink. I knew his first name. I think it was Dave or something. And um, there was one day he came in and he just went. He'd gone out and I forgot to put butter in his fruit toast. And he just had such an attitude with me. And I went, you know what? I'm a writer, I'm an actor, I'm a filmmaker. I'm currently filming a sitcom. I don't need this. Yeah. And that was it. I handed him a resignation, had had Christmas off and got my first um, full paid job in January. And I've never looked back since. Wow. Yes. You know, so yeah. Oh, so you can definitely get out thing. of Asda when you, if you want to. <laughs> 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 Joking but the great thing <laughs> about uh, Take the Cake Productions is you've got loads of like corporate stuff on there and you do loads of good instructional videos of like mm. how to uh, do video content, how to do Facebook Live, that kind of stuff. So I think it's really informative just for that from, from mm -hmm. a kind of a production point of view. I think when you are, I mean, everyone's competing to be influencers or to be the know-all person of an industry you have to give so much value you have i mean they always say oh you should never give away free advice necessarily but i think you should we're living in a world now where we invest in each other and you know it's, yeah. it's funny you know i've got uh, most of you guys are on my facebook and i've probably not even met half of the people on my yeah. facebook but they are true friends they are people i would instantly go and get a coffee with i'd know them you know, yeah. it, there wouldn't be any awkwardness. I would know them. I would, you know, I give my time for people I care about. And we live in a world now where if you can give as much information to prove you know what you're talking about, to prove that you are knowledgeable and to actually just help other people, you don't realise how far that can go. Always be a good person. My nan taught me that. <laughs> um, and, you know, yeah. and, and, and Ken Dodd also did that as well. And that's why I don't swear in my sitcoms. I don't swear in my comedy because I just think to be good at what you do, you don't need to rely on swearing. I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong. I like a bit of Roy Chubby Brown. Don't get me mm. wrong. But it's not what I would do personally for myself, my yeah. own image of, of what I put out there. Well, tell us how you met Andrew then, because I want to meet, uh, introduce Andrew Games into, into the discussion now. Um, now, before we before we started recording, you were telling me something that I, I thought was was dead nice in terms of you have the same ethics, and you touched on it there a little bit about um, not being kind of uh, big egos because you've worked with people like that. So tell me how um, how you came to work with Andrew. Life is short and I think you have to spend your time being as productive and as happy and as and give people as much value as possible. And when I worked on Morbid um, and, and I had so many people like, you know, we had 30 plus um, actors, crew. We had an, another 30 um, extras that came down just by word of mouth, you know, and, and that you know, that's because they invested in me. They knew that, wow, this guy's really, he's gone out there. He wants to produce a sitcom. He's not getting paid for it. Wow, what a great little idea that is. And so people got behind me because of the personality and who I am. I give my time for people. And that's what Andrew does as well. He is a very caring. Uh, and I, I respect Andrew quite a lot. And I, I, I would give him my time all the time because... You know, and this isn't just blowing smoke because I know he can hear me. Um, <laughs> you know, I've said this to him. He, you know, his attention to detail, his dedication, his, you know, 
his dream. I, you know, he's storytelling just as much as I am. I don't just want to make a sitcom that makes people laugh. I want to make people change the way they think about death. I want people to actually be open about death. It, you know, the comedy and the sitcom is one thing. It's the message in which I want to take yeah. this further. And people, by the end of the series, go, wow, that, wow, that's just crazy. And they can talk about death. And, um, you know, with Andrew, he wants to do the same thing. You know, he's been influenced a lot by the, the, the Teddy Boy movement. And, you know, you only have to look at his social media to know that it's not just a little film that a little filmmaker from the Wirral wants to make. You know, he's researched, he's studied, he lives and breathes what he is doing. And I did the same. The amount of funeral directors I went to, the amount of people... <laughs> I actually did my own funeral. Someone messaged me on, on Facebook saying, uh, you know, we can't afford a funeral. We know you've got a hearse. Would you be able to take our, our loved um, member of the family to a crematorium? And I did that. No questions asked. Oh, my God. Yeah, wow. it, was in the daily, it was in the Daily Mirror and everything. Uh, it, I think it's called DIY Groom um, Plans His Own Funeral or something. But, yeah, it was in the... It was in the the, but I did that because the community had helped me raise five thousand yeah, pounds. So yeah. that was my way of giving back to a community. Yeah. And I know that Andrew would do the same thing if he was in a similar situation. He lives and breathes what he does. He's passionate about what he does. He's very good at what he does. And when I'm on set, it doesn't feel like you're working. His his set is very much like the set I have. And to find people like that that understand that people do this because they're passionate about it. It's not yeah. a job. There's no hierarchy. There's no, you're lower than me, so you need to be out of my face. Because yeah. we've all been on sets where it's been like that, and it's disgusting. Mm. So, you know, I have a lot of respect for Andrew because I know that when I work with him, he respects me, I respect him, and we have a really good day doing it. All right. Well, let, let's, let's bring you in, um, please, Andrew. Um, you started off as an actor and now uh, have become a, a writer, director. Tell us how, how you got in, into, um, um, into uh, uh, performance art generally. Well, um, first of all, thank you very much, Michael. Um, that was really kind. Um, unfortunately, I can't say the same about you. Um, <laughs> I'm only joking. <laughs> I'm only joking. Um, well, would, would, you had, not um, bury, would you not bury Michael in a coffin? Would I not bury him in a coffin? I'd, I'd whack him over the head and make <laughs> him fall into the coffin. Um, <laughs> no, no, I love him. He's, uh, he's great. Um, well, my journey is a little bit similar to uh, Michael in regards to just kind of falling into the filmmaking. Um, yeah. It just kind of happened by, by well, a mixture of curiosity and, and, and by, by accident, really. Uh, but as an actor, I've been uh, an actor now uh, for 12 years, uh, professionally yeah. for the last six years. And um, it always fascinates people when, when they say this, because um, in a lot of ways, medically, I, I really, I shouldn't have been a performer because I was born with um, a condition called uh, language disorder. Okay. So uh, I, had, I struggled to communicate with people. Um, and, you know, I was quite often, as you are around kids as well, when you're a child at that time, you get ostracised from uh, certain groups who don't understand what they're dealing with or anything like that. And um, medically, I was, um, you know, it was, it was going to be hard work, but my mother, you know, broke every blood, sweat and tear to make sure that I would overcome this. And I went to speech therapy and I eventually overcame 
uh, my language disorder, but as a consequence to having a language disorder in the first place, I had a really strong stutter. Every now and then I'll slip into it, but it's very rare, but I had a really strong stutter for many years. And I used, I remember in school and I've been into high school, um, I used to get really nervous because if it was my turn to read something out or if the teacher asked me a question, I'd be like, like that. And the rest of the, the rest of the class would kind of join in and go like that and like ridicule me. I look back now and I laugh at it, but at the time it was really, it was yeah. torture, you know. How did you go from the the the, the kind of kid who, who had the stammer to then being putting yourself in the role of acting where people are going to be hanging on your every word? Well, I was doing uh, drama in year eight, year nine. Mm-hmm. And before then with drama, um, I always, I think it's because I had a different teacher at the time as well, before year nine, who kind of understood the condition. So I wasn't really at the forefront of any workshops that we did or any performances, but we had a new teacher and she wasn't really aware of what was going on. I had recovered a little bit by that point, but it still came out. And what happened was uh, it was my turn to do uh, almost like a hot seat where you're given a character in the seat and you just tell the story. You tell about, talk about your character in character I can't remember what character I played, but everyone was kind of waiting for me to to stutter. And I went through the entire monologue without stuttering once, and everyone was just gobsmacked, and I couldn't believe it. And I think what it was at the time, it was pretending to be someone else, to me, was more comfortable and more satisfying than being myself. So for for a while, that was my kind of uh, coping mechanism to overcome the stamina but through doing that I just completely fell in love with acting you know it helped me out from a, a personal standpoint with the medical condition that I had but from a career standpoint and from a uh, you know my my dream my my kind of uh, conquest if you like was to do this for a living for my uh, you know as, as a career so I've never looked back since and it always fascinates people when uh, I told them that, but I've been acting for 12 years mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I've done the mixture of theatre, I've done film, television, radio, I've even done puppetry as well. And with the filmmaking, uh, as, as I mentioned before, like, like, like Michael, I kind of fell into it accidentally because I knew in my heart of hearts, I wanted to be an on-screen performer. Yeah. My earliest uh, memory of being fascinated by what I was watching in front of me. For a lot of people, it was the theatre, but for me, it was on the TV screen, watching, you know, soap operas, watching films, even if it was just the news, just the fact that these people, these real-life figures are on this small box. And back in the 90s, it was a small it was a small box compared to what you have now. Okay. It just fascinated me. So mm-hmm. that was kind of like my first experience of performance or my first kind of pleasure of watching a performance um so I knew in my heart of heart I wanted to be a film and tv actor and when I finished my time at Hope Street Limited as an emerging artist I went to film and television classes called Act Up North 
and I invested in a camera uh, so I could practice at home uh, film acting and how to be a minimalist. And through doing that, I learned editing, I learned storytelling, I learned camera techniques, sound techniques, and I just kind of fell in love. And what I used to do with a lot of my classmates at Act Up North who wanted more experience and wanted more exposure, we'd all collaborate together and we'd devise a story and we'd kind of become our own actors and, and film yeah, crew in yeah. a way. You know, we'd take Your it in turns. Absolutely, yeah. And that's how um, it kind of started for me. So I've always considered filmmaking to be a plan B in case if the acting completely yeah. fails or if there's ever a time where I can't do it anymore for whatever reason, like the filmmaking is a plan B, which I'd be over the moon to have in, in the longevity. But uh, to, to bring that forward to now, because you have this kind of um, fascination with history and with working class culture and music, um, and particularly kind of um, 50s, 60s England and the teenage culture, which has led you to um, produce um, Dan Delicious. So tell us the, the, the background to that, please, Andrew. Of course. So I've always been absolutely fascinated by history. I've always believed that yesteryear is so much more fascinating than this year. I don't know whether that's just because we're living in the present and we take a lot of things at present for granted. And, you know, we look at things in retrospect and we might have regrets about things. We yeah. might get butterflies over something or there might be a desire to visit a particular era that you never experienced because you were born too late. And it first started before the Teddy Boy um, story that I wanted to explore. Um, my first kind of historical film that I made was a short film called The Diary of an Aryan Girl, which yeah, tells yeah. the story of a young German couple in mm -hmm. Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. And the film is kind of told through these segments, through uh, the diary entries of this German wife. And, you know, the height of the war for Germany uh, mirrors the height of the relationship between the man and wife. And as the yeah. war starts to decline, it mirrors how the relationship oh, declines. Yeah. And it was only a 20 minute film, but that was very short notice. Um, at the time, uh, myself and my co-star in the film, we were really uh, in a bit of a rut. We had jobs we didn't particularly enjoy. We were struggling to get acting work. Mm -hmm. And Fact Cinema was doing a film night where you could submit your film and it could be chosen for okay. an award. So this was back 2016, four years ago. And at the time, um, we were ooing and ahhing, contemplating, oh, should we do this? And I, I, my attitude was, look, we've got nothing to lose. And um, she said, well, what ideas do you have? I said, leave that to me. I'll come back to you tomorrow. So I was up all night thinking, what ideas did we do? What, you know, what, what, what could we explore? And I came back the following day, had no ideas at all. And she said, well, what ideas do you have? <laughs> and I, I, as you do, my, my first instinct was, I said, I said uh, her, her name's Sarah Sharp. I said, Sarah, picture this, Nazi Germany. And she just buried her head into a hand and went, oh, for God's sake. 
but she listened <laughs> and she she, <laughs> she listened and she read the script and she liked the idea uh, wrote the script uh, for about a week uh, with the exception of a few rewrites here and there it, it was very short notice but the idea with the because um, of course I was fascinated by uh, <clears throat> the second world war and um, yeah. I felt it I felt if I was going to submit a film uh, a sh such short notice and if we were really going to do this properly it would have to be something that a lot of people wouldn't even entertain the idea of doing um, okay it had to be something unusual something novel it had to be something completely out, out of the box yeah. to the extent where people might say why the hell would you do that but they'd yeah. watch it because of that curiosity and you know, it, we didn't, um, and we, well, we submitted the film to fact, it didn't get through, but we released it publicly anyway, as a non-profit short film. And it was crazy, like, you know, it, it kind of became critically acclaimed among the Northwest filmmakers scene. You know, it, it kind of helped get other actors in our city to know each other, uh, to know us a bit more. Oh, yeah, yeah. That took you by surprise, but it inspired you to go on. It did indeed. So we, uh, I, so that that was great, and I knew that, you know, if I was ever in a rut again, I had to create my own opportunity again. So from that moment on, whatever jobs that I had, whether it was um, acting jobs or whether it was jobs part time outside of acting, a certain percentage of my wage would go into a separate account and I'd gradually okay. save up, save up, save up, save up, save up for that next film. The question was, what was that next film going to be? <laughs> now, again, history was always going to overshadow my thoughts on the present. And one thing I've always been fascinated by is the Teddy Boy subculture. Yes. And I wrote a script a few years beforehand about Teddy Boys but um, it, what it was, it was to do with, um, it was an idea that I had that I couldn't get out of my head, which I needed to put down on paper, but I didn't make it. And the reason why I didn't make it was, was because much to my ignorance, I thought there would be no audience for this film. I thought the Teddy Boy subculture was something that in the genesis of it was in the 50s, had a neat little revival in the 70s. And that was it. You know, no one would be interested in it. But what, what inspired you about the Teddy Boy culture? Was it the clothes? Was it the music? Was it, was it everything? It was a mixture of things, really. I think, I mean, obviously the clothes. I mean, you know, people pulling off Edwardian dress wear in <laughs> you know, the mid-20th century was, was, you know, quite fascinating. But I always found it very, uh, I've always found it, that there was like a really great juxtaposition with these kind of reckless um, youths who have this kind of reckless lifestyle, but their clothes would suggest otherwise, you know, they're really smartly dressed, but yeah. you know, there they are having fights on the streets and stuff. I always found that fascinating, but I always found through research and, and, you know, a, a, an opinion that I have uh, is I think the Ted subculture is a very, underrated and un underappreciated community of, of people. And the reason why I think that is because they were the first anti-establishment youth movement. 
Yes. Um, they, and they, they were the first teenagers, really, because teenagers didn't exist in the 40s. They did numerically, but there wasn't a teenage cult in the 40s. Absolutely. They, they defined the word teenager. And mm. what happened, you know, I think it gave the youth for future generations a voice. What you've got to understand is uh, from, a, from a historical context, which is highlighted in the film, we just won a war, but we've lost an empire. It yeah. was doom and gloom. There was, as far as, as, far as pe people were concerned at the time, there was no future. Uh, and especially for, for the youngsters who were children of war, they were victims, really, of a broken system, broken society. And somewhere along the line, somewhere down the line, um, the Teds, who were not Teddy boys at the time, these young people thought, well, do you know what? We're not going to sit on our hands. We're going we're gonna to create our own future. We're going to make some noise. We're going to make our presence known. And we're going to prove that we should be respected just as much as the adults yeah. and we're gonna we're gonna make a statement and indeed they did they had an identity they had their music what a lot of people um don't know which is quite trivial is um before rock and roll ted heath and his orchestra and a lot of the jazz musicians were kind of like the teddy boy anthem musically oh, okay. before the likes of bill haley and the comets yeah. came onto the scene billy fury so on and so forth so um, with, the, uh, with, with them making all this noise, the media kind of bounced back. And though there was juvenile delinquency, I think oh. the way that the media presented them in a particular light, they always over-exaggerated certain things that happened, um, certain events that occurred with Teddy Boys. And what happened was, I think, the, the way the media portrayed them always stained them, always scarred them. And I think that's why a lot of people, I think that's why there's never been a film about the subculture. There's been Teddy Boy characters in film. There's been the likes of Peter Sellers, whose debut film was in The Lady Killers, where yeah. he played a Teddy Boy. Um, you know, there's, there's been well, so there's many- been Quadrophenia and Brighton Rock and, and things like that as well. Absolutely. And if it wasn't for the Teds, the likes of the mods, the rockers, the punks, they wouldn't have, yeah. um, you know, they wouldn't have a voice. It, there's always been an underlying theme of all these subcultures. And I think it's so important that it all started with the Teddy Boys. So, you know, that's something I've really wanted to push with well, this you've film. you've actually achieved it as well, because the thing about Dan Delicious as well and, um, and the main character, Marty, it's just so stylish. And I, I think it, it kind of um, carries on from the stuff that was going on with Michael Caine and Oliver Reed in the early 60s, that, that kind of genre of action, uh, of acting, which was also about style as well. Of course, and I wanted to mirror that with the style of filmmaking, uh, not just from, uh, you know, how, lack of a better word, how cool this subculture was, but I think with modern audiences who may not be familiar with Teddy Boys, I wanted to do this really abstract style, this immersive style. So I've described it under the genre of a stylized neo-Western. It's, yeah. it's taken inspiration from you know, the, the spaghetti Westerns, the one-man gang, the lone wolf, uh, you know, Marty's his own person. And yeah. the best way to describe it, you know, regarding to how larger than life the characters are, how extravagant the storytelling is, how immersive it is. 
I would describe it as a Dick Tracy comic for adults. It's yes. so colourful, but it's so mature as well and quite dark, um, you know. And one thing I do want to say is I think a lot of people from watching the trailer sometimes got the instant feeling that it was just a juvenile delinquency kind of movie, mm. crash bang wallop, no story mm. to it. There's so much more to it than that. Yeah. It's, you know, the film paints the portrait of a narcissist. It's about yes. narcissism. It's about bigotry. It's about politics. Yeah. All the characters in the film are inspired by politicians. Yeah, it's, it's complex. Past and present. Yeah. 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 There's just so much more to the film. It's, it's, it's not a typical anti-hero film. There's depth. There's dimensions. There's dynamics. And, um, you know, I think... It, when you when you think about all those subtexts and historical context as well, it just helps the film pop out the screen so much more. So it, is it available now? Because I know that lockdown um, uh, held up the film. And what, what stage is it at now? We have literally got two scenes left to shoot, one of which Michael is taking part of this coming Thursday. Um, when oh the, yeah, hence him not shaving, yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> he's telling us he's not shaved. <laughs> <laughs> with, um, with, we were literally close to filming, uh, complete, completing filming yeah. around, I think if the pandemic wouldn't have happened, the filming would have wrapped up around April, early April, late March. The film probably would have been out by this winter. With the pandemic, it delayed us for four months. Yeah. And when we were able to film again, albeit with a restricted um, number of people on set at any one time, um, you know, social distancing, etc., we were able to continue filming, but there were still some venues um, that we were planned we were, we were planning to film at, film at, which had to be postponed still because they didn't feel it was the right time to reopen those venues for us to film at. Only recently, one of them have decided to reopen for us on the conditions of the restrictions, etc. So we've only got two scenes left to do now. Mm-hmm. Realistically, in regards to the release of the film, I don't think by the, the landscape of the industry at the moment, the film's going to be out in cinemas. We have plans for it to be released in independent cinemas, so for yeah. the likes of Fact Cinema, they're yeah, under yeah. a banner called Picture House. So Picture House is yeah. a franchise that's littered across the country. Yeah. That was the original plan. We were going to get distribution and have it through Picture House across the country and then online distribution, video on demand, streaming platforms. With the, with the nature of everything going on, realistically, I think it is probably going to be video on, video on demand, streaming platforms, maybe even try to get it to Netflix. Why not? We've got nothing to lose. Why and not? get a distribution through that. there. Yeah, why not? Why not? They can only say no. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, but well, we'll, we'll certainly yes. like promote it on, on the uh, like-minded um, page and podcast as well when, when it's out. Oh, please, that'd be brilliant. Thank you very much. So thank you so much, Andrew and Michael, for coming on today. Um, it, I'm just oh, glad every to time that I do filmmaking it. is alive and thriving yeah. in, in the northwest. Brilliant. Yeah. It's just so inspiring, honestly. Both of you are just so 
and this is why we wanted to do this podcast to like grassroots theatres, grassroots th- filmmakers and actors are making it. Like, even though we're not on Netflix yet, we are making it. And I just, you're just so inspiring. So thank you so much for today. No, thank, thank you. I'm gutted that I couldn't meet you guys in person because it would have been nice to see you again, Caitlin, Rob. Andrew, it would have been nice to meet you properly for the first time in person, but that'll have to wait until until the time is right. But it was lovely to speak to you guys. I've had a lot of fun on here. Yeah, Michael, 2021 is going to be the time of catching up. Can I say thank you very much for, for both our guests and, um, you know, check them out on, on Facebook and check them out on, on YouTube. Um, I'd also like to say thank you to Andrew, our producer, who's uh, put this all together. Um, I, I didn't think it would happen, but my God, it has happened. Thank you, Andrew. Um, if you've enjoyed the like-minded podcast, my name is Bob Towers. If you haven't enjoyed it, my name is Caitlin Bradley. So <laughs> see you all again. And uh, yeah, please uh, let us know what you think about our guests, what you think about the, the podcast by contacting um, like-minded productions. Um, Caitlin? We, we, you know, we always leave with what are your plans for the uh, for the week ahead? For the week ahead? Oh, Bobby, I've got to have a drink tonight. Why not? It's a Sunday. <laughs> well, I've actually, uh, I've actually found um, a, a loophole in the lockdown uh, plans, and that is you can have a grouse shooting party. So um, I'm organising a grouse shooting party in Birkenhead. Um, Andrew, you're invited. Um, we, we'll go out shooting grouse, and that, that that's how we'll socialise. Okay, thanks everyone. See you all again next time. Take care.